Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. The word of God speaks to us. Behold my servant, who I am uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is God's word to us. God. Awesome. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Thanks so much for being with us today. If we've not met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. It's good to see some faces that I don't know or have, uh, have not yet met. So I'd love to meet you after the service. It's good to have you with us today. Maybe you're here today and uh, you're hearing the songs and you're hearing the stuff that we're saying and you're just not sure where you're at with any of this stuff. Maybe the claims of Jesus uh, sound dry to you. And I think today is going to be really helpful for you. I also think next week would be good. But I just want to say that any, anyone on our staff team is available to meet and get coffee with you. We really do believe the stuff that we're saying. We really do believe that there's hope in Jesus, that there's love and peace in Jesus. This isn't just like a, a holiday sentimentality for us. We really think that our lives can be anchored in what he has to offer. So if you have questions about that, man, bring those questions to us. We'd love to sit with you and process what Jesus said. So it's good to have you. Just a couple of things before we jump into Isaiah 42. Uh, and I want to specifically talk to those of you who consider Frontline Home for just a minute. So uh, you already heard it. Tyler said this. Three services next Sunday. And we're not reminding you of Christmas Eve to induce more anxiety into your life or to remind you of all the shopping lists that are not yet completed. We're saying this so that you can start prayerfully thinking about the friends, the neighbors, the, the coworkers in your life that you can invite next Sunday. If you have people in your life that are far from God, that don't have a church home, man, next Sunday is a day to invite them. And we just really believe that God is going to save the lost next week. We just believe that as the good news of Jesus is shared, there's going to be seeds that are planted, and those seeds are going to turn into dead hearts coming to life either next Sunday or in sometime in 2024. So I would just say invite your friends, invite uh, family members, uh, three services. This is a day for us as a church to not consume. This is a day for us not to show up for ourselves. We're actually trying to host our city. Amen? So, well, no, I don't think anyone said amen. Wow. Okay. So, am I alone? You, amen? You excited? Yeah. No, okay. I got a little nervous there for a minute. So next Sunday, man, let's go big on that. And then the last thing, and I would just say if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus or this is not uh, home for you, just ignore me for 30 seconds. But if Frontline is your home, this is crazy. We only have two more Sundays before we round out and finish out 2023. Two more Sundays and we're done for the year. So what I want you to do is I want you to evaluate your giving. 
Your giving is how we do what we do as a church. It's how we love the poor. It's how we serve our city. It's how we take care of single moms in our church. It's how we meet needs with people that arise in our church. It's, it's, it's literally how we do ministry and mission is because of your generosity. So I just want to invite you to examine your giving over the course of this year. And if it's dropped off or you need to get caught up, or if you're trying to figure out, you know, some of us get year-end bonuses, if that's true, man, just be prayerful with us about how you can finish the year generously with us, because that's how we do what we do as a church. So I just want to remind you to do that as we round out the year. And man, I'm so stoked for next week. It's going to be a lot of fun. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to work our way through the first four verses of Isaiah 42. So if you have a Bible, grab it. If you don't have one, it should be in the the seat underneath you somewhere. Isaiah 42 is where we're going to be. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you for the gift that it is to hear from your word. And as we turn our minds and our attention and our heart towards your word, I'm just reminded that well before we ever did that, you had turned your attention towards us. Before we ever showed any interest in you, you've showed profound interest and desire for us. And that's hard for me to wrap my head around, your grace for people like us. I just want to say today, would you come and would you move and would you work and would you allow the word of God to bring healing and hope and uh, even joy today to people that are really far away from those things. In fact, I pray today for the people in the room that are absolutely joyless, that don't even know where to start, that that are on the brink today. I pray that you would meet them with your mercy and with your love. And I can't do that. There's nothing that I could say to do that. We need you to do that. So would you come and would you meet us as we open up Isaiah 42? Pray these things in your name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, you and I know February 14th as Valentine's Day, which is, you know, a day that I have mixed feelings about. It's super cheesy and at times awkward and uh, highly commercialized, but Valentine's Day, regardless, is the day where we trade uh, boxes of chocolates or the little pink candy hearts that taste like chalk, or we write cards to the people in our lives that we love. There's some good things there for sure. But uh, for Theodore Roosevelt in 1884, February 14th for him was the darkest day of his entire life, the darkest day. Two days before February 14th, his wife had uh, sent word to him that her, her child, their, their first child, was about to be born. And so Theodore Roosevelt got the news from Telegram. He, he rushed to his home in New York City to meet his wife and to meet his new child. And by the time that he had arrived, though, his wife had given birth and during that process had gotten severely sick and had went into a coma. So he's sitting there with his wife and holding her, she's in a coma, and while he's literally sitting upstairs with his wife, uh, someone comes from downstairs and says, hey, your mom is downstairs, and her health is declining. She is not looking good. His mom downstairs was suffering from typhoid fever, and so he, he leaves his wife who's in a coma. He goes downstairs. By the time he gets downstairs to check on his mom, his mom dies, and so he leaves his mom's side, he goes back upstairs, and literally minutes after he gets back upstairs, his wife dies. So here he is, grieving the loss of his mom and his wife the same day, literally minutes apart. He sits down, he opens up a journal, and he etched a heavy black X in this journal entry and wrote these words, the light 
has gone out of my life. The light has gone out of my life. Now, I bring that story up to try to give you a sense of where the people of God and Isaiah 42 were. If you were to look at the history of the people of God in the Old Testament, this is one of those days that on the journal entry, you would etch a heavy black X and you would say, the light has gone out of our lives. And, and the people of God's story, where, where we are in Isaiah 40 to 55, these 15 chapters, something devastating has happened. This, this powerful nation, Babylon at the time, had come into town and they had invaded Israel. They had invaded Jerusalem. They had desecrated the temple and burned it and taken all these valuable things inside of the temple, these sacred things for the people of God, and had stolen them. And for the temple, the people of Israel is, is not like our White House, right? It's not just a national symbol of power for them. The temple was representative of the very presence of God with his people. So when you see the temple desecrated and broken down and set on fire, the, 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 the kind of subscript there is God's presence has left his people. And then Babylon continued to murder and pillage and rape and do horrible things to the people of God. And then after doing that, they grabbed some of the young boys and some of the young girls and they took them as prisoners of war to their homeland in Babylon. This is a dark day for God's people. What we're seeing today, what we're reading about today comes in that context. Now, one other thing that's helpful to understand here is that unlike Theodore Roosevelt, who his suffering was literally just because we live in a broken, fallen, busted up world, it wasn't a result of his sin. This is different. For the people of Israel, Isaiah the prophet has been very clear this whole time that uh, because of Israel's rejection of God, because of their saying, we don't want you, God, and we actually want to worship what we want to worship, we want to do what we want to do, we want to live the way that we want to live, Isaiah the prophet had been writing to them saying, if you continue in this pattern, God is going to send judgment on you. And so what we have here is not just innocent suffering, but what we have is actually a direct result of their sin and their rebellion and their rejection of God. This is the bed that they had made. And all the pain, all the suffering is a direct response to their own sin and their own brokenness. And so when you get to the section of this book of Isaiah, the words that kind of sum up the mood, the words that they would have said kind of describe their situation are words like this overwhelmed, discouraged, ashamed, guilty, hurting, struggling, on the brink, barely making it. Or to use Isaiah's language here in Isaiah 42, they were like bruised reeds or faintly burning candles. I just want to pause and I just want to ask, can you relate to any of those words? Maybe you're not in a season right now that you can, some of you for sure are, can you relate to these words of being overwhelmed, of being full of despair, discouraged, ashamed, guilty, struggling, on the brink, barely making it? Like maybe you feel like the candle of joy is about to be fully snuffed out. And it's ironic, isn't it? It's ironic because here we are lighting today the third candle of the Advent season, which represents the candle of joy. 
And, and, and let me just be honest, like my hope is that many of you are like, yes and amen to that, that joy. I actually experience it. I'm feeling it. Like I, I've got the joy of Jesus in my heart for sure. But I know, I know that there's some people in the room that lighting that candle almost feels like even more painful because you feel a million miles away from joy today. And, and, and here you are, and you're just sort of like, I'm over the, ho- the, the, the holiday sentimentality stuff. I'm over the, the, the joy of Christmas. Like, all of that is, that is not my shared experience right now. And here we are lighting candles that I just don't, I can't relate to this stuff. Do you feel that? So the question that we need to wrestle with today is, what do we do? What do we do when our lives just fall apart? And maybe they fall apart because of our own sin and our own brokenness and our own bad decisions. Or maybe, just maybe it's like Theodore Roosevelt, you just live in a broken, busted up world and suffering has hit. It's hit your body, it's hit your family, it's, it's hit your life. And you just are sitting here wondering, like, what do I do when I feel like I'm on the brink? What do we do when I'm barely hanging on and I'm barely making it. Or maybe more importantly, the question that we need to wrestle with is what does God do? How does God respond to us when the light either has gone out or it feels like it's about to go out? How does God feel about us when our lives are a complete mess, full of brokenness, and maybe it's even my own doing? Now, if you're not currently in that place, it's good to ask these questions because we're either sort of in that place, or one day headed towards the dark day, right? So we need to know, how does God respond to us on our dark day where we just want to put a big black X and say, the light has gone out? Well, when you're in that place, I don't know of a better place to go than the book of Isaiah. Now, let let me give you a brief recap of where we are if you're just jumping in. So we are in week three of our Advent series, which is a a part of the church calendar and the church history of the the four weeks leading up to Christmas, where the early church was looking back to the first arrival of Jesus at Christmas and remembering that. And then we look forward in history to his future return, his final return, where he comes back to make all things new. And so this is the thing that we've been doing is actually going through some of these prophecies or some of these promises, if you will, in the book of Isaiah about this future king that was going to come, about Jesus, about Jesus entering into human history. And everything that we've been doing in this Advent series so far has been painting us a picture of Jesus as this amazing, powerful king. If you remember in week one, we looked at Isaiah 9. Here's just a snippet of Isaiah 9. It says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. I love that it doesn't even say shoulders. It's like Jesus is so powerful as a king that the the governments of every nation on the planet can very lightly, easily rest on his shoulder. And his name, Isaiah 9 says, shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And then in week two, last week of our Advent series, we looked at Isaiah 11, and Isaiah 11 puts even more color on what this king will do to his enemies and what this king will do even to our world. Notice what it says in Isaiah 11. It says, And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And then it goes on to say, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. So, so the, the picture that we are getting painted so far is of this 
powerful, almost like warlord-like king that's going to show up and destroy his enemies and bring peace and actually heal our broken world. The picture that we have is of a, a king dripping with authority, dripping with power, dripping with courage, and, and you're sort of in awe of his power at this point. And, and then what Isaiah is going to do today is he's going to almost do this curtain unveil of even more of what this king is going to be like. It's almost like Isaiah 42 is him unveiling for us this, like, for, this fuller picture of what this Messiah, what this king is going to be like. And it will absolutely shock you because it's not anything like what they or we would expect. So with that in mind, Look at Isaiah 42, verse 1. You ready for the unveil? Behold my servant. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I just got three things that I want you to see today. The first one is I want you to see the shocking nature of this king. This is sort of like a Christopher Nolan film, you know, the moment where there's like this, this drumbeat in the background that's faint, but then as the story unfolds, as the movie unfolds, the drumbeat gets louder and faster and louder and faster, and you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know why I'm stressed and excited, but I am, and, and it's building, it's building, it's about to crescendo, and, and then we turn the page to Isaiah 42, he, he unveils, and all of a sudden what we have here, we're expecting this powerful king, and instead he says, behold, my servant. Sort of like, wait, a servant? It's almost like a, a, a record scratch moment in the song that Isaiah has been playing for us. We're not expecting a servant. We're expecting more power, more king-like attributes, and yet here we're introduced to a servant. In fact, Isaiah 42 is the very first of four what's been called servant songs, which is Isaiah giving us this very different picture of what this future coming king will be like, and it's not at all what the people of Israel expected. In fact, even this very day, in this very moment, all of the Jewish people today see this chasm between all these promises of this future king and Messiah, and then this servant, and they have concluded that those are not the same people. There is no way that this future king of Israel will also be servants. Kings are not servants, they have servants. And so they have concluded that there's no way that this can be a king who is also a servant. And yet you and I, as followers of Jesus, have seen the power and the beauty of what's being said because Isaiah is hinting at he's not the king that any of us would expect. He's very, very different. Look again even at what it says in verse 2. Verse 2 is describing his arrival on the scene. This is an arrival text. So look at verse 2. It says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. This is the hear ye, hear ye moment. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, hear ye, hear ye, the king has been born. Hear ye, hear ye, the, the king of Israel has arrived. And what Isaiah 42 verse 2 is telling us is that this king, this servant, he won't have a hear ye, hear ye moment. That's not the way that this is going to go down. How many of you remember the movie Bruce Almighty? Raise your hands. I'm not, I'm not asking if you've seen the movie. Some of you feel weird about admitting that. And I don't know why. I'm not asking if you've seen the movie, but if you've not seen the movie, uh, it's basically about a man named Bruce who gets a chance to be God. 
right? It's super cheesy and super sacrilegious, but it's a chance for this normal man to be God. And there's this scene that's almost unforgettable in the movie. It's like right what he does when he becomes God for the first time. And he just walks around the city and he's like, pow, 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 like, you know, blasting stuff with his power, demonstrating his, his might. You know, he's doing all of these things that he's always wanted to do because now he's God. And he's doing it and the song in the background is, I've got the power. And he's kind of mouthing the words as he does it. All right, with that in mind, I want you to just imagine with me that you are God. It's probably not what you'd expect to have a pastor in church ask you to do, but I want you to just imagine that you are God, and you're going to arrive into human history for the very first time. How would you do it? What would it look like? I would imagine it'd be full of fanfare, pomp and circumstance, trumpet blasts, If I were God and I'm arriving in human history, it's going to be unforgettably powerful. Everyone's going to notice. It's going to be grand. The entrance will be beautiful. I'd probably choose to come down on a fiery cloud of blazing glory with music in the background. I mean, everybody would know I'm God and here I am. That's what it would look like if I could enter into human history. And then if you were God... And it's the first time to show up. Who are, you, who are you going to show up to? Who are you going to make your grand appearance to and introduce yourself to? If it were me and it's 2,000 years ago, I'm going, I'm going straight to Caesar, the most powerful leader on the planet of the most powerful empire in the world. I'm going to go to Caesar and I'm going to have a conversation about him needing to get off of my chair because I'm God and here I am. It's my turn to lead. And then I'm going to go to the Roman Senate and have the similar conversation with them. And then I'm traveling to every nation on the planet, finding all the political leaders and all the important people. And I'm announcing to them, I am God. I've arrived. I think if any of us were God, that's probably what it would look like. And yet, friends, Isaiah 42 2 says, that this God, this servant, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. God doesn't do any of those things. In fact, what he does is shocking. No fanfare, no pomp and circumstance, no trumpet blasts, no grand unforgettable, unforgettable entrance, no blazing cloud of glory. Instead, the God of the Bible came quietly in the middle of the night. And not only that, but God actually arrived on the scene as a baby, as a fragile, breakable infant child. Friends, God made his grand appearance into the world through a birth canal. God made his appearance into our world through a birth canal. And what's almost even more unbelievable is who does God appear to first? Does he show up to Caesar or the Roman Senate or the the powers that be or the important people? No, the very first appearance, the very first people that he shows up to, financially poor Jewish couple from an obscure town that nobody really cared about with a family lineage that was full of brokenness and sin and tragedy. Friends, think about it. Out of all the families on planet Earth that God could have put himself in the middle of, he chose a family with a long line of brokenness. Man, if you read the genealogy in in Matthew chapter 1, the names that show up in that genealogy of Jesus are names that are shameful, names of absolutely the worst of the worst, and God wanted to identify himself with that family. And further to say that 
there wasn't any fanfare. Well, that's not entirely true because there were angels after all. There were a multitude of angels that we read about in Luke chapter 2. But friends, who did those angels appear to? Not, not the Romans, not the powerful, a group of shepherds out on some field somewhere in the middle of the night. Shepherds who are in history, some of the, the, the worst people, like you do the job of shepherd by, by this point in history, if you can't do any other job, if, you, if, you, if your resume is blank, if you have no credit, if you're a sketchy person, that's the type of job that you take as a shepherd. And out of all the people that God wanted to communicate, hey, I'm here, hey, I've arrived, it's a group of shepherds and poor Jewish people that don't matter to anyone. Man, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He instead comes humbly and quietly in the middle of the night as a breakable baby. In fact, Isaiah 53, another servant song that tells us more about the servant, says it this way. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And notice this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus is not a good-looking person. He's not handsome. He's not attractive. He's not someone that appears to be strong. He's not someone that you would look at and be like, oh my gosh, I've got to follow that guy. This is the way that this king chose to come as a servant. And friends, here's why this matters so much. Here's why this matters is because Isaiah 42 is giving us a window into the heart of God. And here's what I mean. Everything about this story, about how God chose to arrive, about how he chose to be the king who actually is a servant, is actually revealing to us something about his character. And this is good news for us. And what I mean is, as I think about this room, almost everybody in this room, myself included, we're not very important people. We're not really that special. Now, I think you're great. I love you. I think that you're really unique and great. And we do have a few people in our church that in the eyes of the world would be considered more powerful or more important or more valuable. But for the rest of us, we're just sort of average, aren't we? What I mean is like if a, if a leader from some foreign country or even a leader in our own country were to show up to Oklahoma, they're not necessarily going to be looking up our address. They're not going to be visiting us. They don't really care about us. We're the normal people. We're the average people. We're the people that probably are in some ways a little bit overlooked. Some of you might even say that you're unwanted, that you feel like you've been thrown away. And I just want to say, friends, if that's the way that you feel, if that's what you actually feel like, you're in really good hands because you're exactly the types of people that Jesus wanted to associate with. You're the people he came for. He came for people like us. And that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is the surprising nature of his kingdom. It's not just how shocking it is that he's not the king that we would have thought, but even the kingdom that he brings is surprising. Look at what it says in Isaiah 42 verse 3 says this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, what's a bruised reed? 
We, we know what a reed is. A reed is sort of like a bamboo shoot, right? It's not exactly a bamboo shoot, but it's a lot like that. If you've ever seen bamboo, that's what a reed is like. And throughout history, reeds were used for a lot of different purposes. They would be used for construction on shelters to be like a roof or siding. They were used for knives or for arrows. But one of the most common things that reeds were used for were like uh, flutes, like musical instruments, right? So what's a bruised reed? Well, it's hard with that word bruised because for us, the word bruised means like, uh, like a, a surface contusion on the skin that's really not that big of a deal. You can see it. And we even have a phrase like, oh, it's just a bruise. Eh, it's just a bruise, right? For us, a bruise is not that big of a deal. But the word that's used here in Hebrew for bruised does not mean that. It does not mean what we use the word as in our culture. In fact, what the word actually means is crushed. It means crushed. And it's talking about a type of injury, if you think of a human person, a type of injury that is not seen on the surface, but actually penetrates deep inside and crushes a vital organ that you have. And it's sort of like a death blow. People can't necessarily see it, but you're walking around with a death blow that's deep inside of you. That's what this word bruised means. So think about it. What does it mean when it says a bruised Reed. Well, if you have a flute that's made out of a reed and it's bruised, it might look fine on the outside, but it's cracked, it's damaged, it's broken. And when you have a damaged flute that when you blow into it and it doesn't work, what do you do? You just throw it away, you get rid of it, you toss it because it's worthless, it doesn't mean anything, it's not good for anything. And then he uses this other metaphor of a, a faintly burning wick. Have you, ever, have you ever lit in a candle and then blown it out and watched as like it's, it's sparking slowly and then the spark starts to die, then it smokes and then it just goes out? That's what he's describing with a faintly burning wick. Now, now think about these two metaphors here. He's talking about people and he's talking about a type of hopelessness and despair that's hard to even wrap your head around. He's talking about that moment when you put the giant black X on your day or on your season or on your life and you say, the light has completely gone off. Friends, in this room right now, we have bruised reeds. We have people that you come in and you look fine on the outside and we even do the Oklahoma thing. We're like, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. How are you? Oh, we're good. But deep down, you're carrying a type of bruise that can't be seen with the human eye. It's gone deep inside of you. And maybe on a spiritual level, maybe on an emotional level, maybe on a spiritual, uh, like a physical level, you've gotten bad news from the doctor. Like you're literally walking around and you, you would just say, man, I feel crushed. I'm despairing. I'm hopeless. Friends, right now in this room, we have faintly burning wicks. And there's people that they don't even know how to talk about it in this room. They don't even know how to admit it or say it. But if you think about your faith as a follower of Jesus, you're like, man, I, I don't know how I'm going to survive as a Christian. I don't know if I'm going to make it till the end. I might be like those stories of people that just walk away and deconstruct and decide I don't want to do this anymore. Like my faith, my love for Jesus feels like a candle that's on its way out. It's a faintly burning wick. 
And friends, I just want you to look at this. How does God feel about people in that place? Either because of their own sin or just the brokenness of this world, you would say, I'm a, I'm a bruised reed, I'm a damaged person, I'm a broken person, I, I'm a candle that's about to burn out. How does God feel about you? Isaiah 42, 3, a bruised reed, he will not break. And a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. What Isaiah is telling us here is beautiful. He's saying that God in Christ is actually uniquely drawn to those who feel like they're the most damaged. That God is actually drawn to those that feel like they're about to to burn out. That God in Christ is drawn to those that are on the brink, that are full of despair and full of hopelessness. And and, and what he's doing here, we get the same text that shows up in Matthew 12, and, and it's the fulfillment of it when Jesus is walking around and he's healing the sick and the diseased and the demonized, and he's he's showing compassion and love. And, and the text here is giving us this idea that he won't just snuff you out if you're this type of person, he won't just not throw you away, but he will, by his love, he will bring healing and restoration to you. Friends, this is good news if you feel like you are on the brink today. Ray Ortland says this. He says, he isn't recruiting the heavy hitters. He wants wounded people, exhausted people, people with doubts, people with weaknesses, injured by their own sins, by the sins of others. Those are the people that he brings into his kingdom and serves. Friends, I want you to see it. You've got to see this, that Jesus does not merely tolerate you if you're a weak believer. He does not merely tolerate you. He is particularly drawn to you. If you're in the room and you struggle, just like you think about your Christian life, you're like, man, I'm an embarrassment of a Christian. If that's you today, if you like struggle with addictions that you can't kick, you struggle with problems, you've messed up your family, you've messed up your own life, he doesn't just tolerate you. He's, he's actually uniquely drawn to you. He's like really drawn to you. This is the types of people that his kingdom is for. He's inviting those types into his kingdom. I love these words from Philip Yancey. He says, Jesus was the first world leader to inaugurate a kingdom with a heroic role for losers. Thanks be to God for that. He spoke to an audience raised on stories of wealthy patriarchs, strong kings, and victorious heroes. But much to their surprise, he honored instead people who have little value in the visible world. The poor and the meek, the persecuted and those who mourn, social rejects, the hungry and the thirsty. His stories consistently featured the wrong people as heroes. The prodigal, not the responsible son. The good Samaritan, not the good Jew. Lazarus, not the rich man. The tax collector, not the Pharisee. As Charles Spurgeon expressed it, his glory was that he laid aside his glory to gather together the outcasts. Friends, that's what Christmas is. The reason why we we light the candle of joy today is because God in Christ entered human history quietly and some night and showed up to the most vulnerable, most broken, most overlooked people. And what he's doing is establishing his kingdom and he's inviting in the outcasts. It is not a meritocracy where you have to earn your keep and you have to do the right stuff and you've got to do all the things to maintain his love for you. No, no, no. It's a kingdom of grace. And if you are profoundly broken, if you are profoundly on the brink, 
It's a kingdom for you. You're being invited in. This king, he came to serve you and to heal you and to pull you close into his kingdom. And that begs the question, how? How can God respond with so much kindness and love for the worst of the worst? How can he treat people that shouldn't be treated this way with so much compassion and love? How, how does he do it? Well, that leads me to the third and final thing I want you to see, which is the servant for the sinner. The servant for the sinner. Look at Isaiah 42, 4 with me. It says this. It says, he will not grow faint. Unlike that faintly burning wick, he will not grow faint or, look at this word, be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This whole idea here is that it's repeated three times that this servant, as humble as he is, is ironically going to be the one to establish justice in the earth. And justice does not mean what we mean in 2023 about social justice. Our culture is so messed up on what that even means. We don't even know what the word justice means as a society anymore. And it doesn't mean uh, a sort of like legal correction or retribution. No, no, this word justice that's being used here means God is coming to make things things right again. All that's wrong, all that's off, he's coming to correct it and make all things right again. But notice it says, in the process, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. Now, on the surface, this verse seems to be looking like, oh, I guess what it's saying is that Jesus is going to persevere in the face of hardship. I guess in the face of difficulty and challenge, he's going to persevere and he's going to be sturdy as this servant who brings justice. We even think, well, I guess he welcomes those who are faintly burning wicks, but in the process, he won't become a faintly burning wick himself. He's, he's going to welcome those who are discouraged, but in the process, he won't be discouraged himself. That's not what this verse is saying. That's not what this verse is saying. It's not saying that, hey, he's big enough to handle your brokenness without being overwhelmed by it. Although that's true, that's not what this verse is saying. So what is this verse saying? Well, the problem is that there's a word here that gets interpreted discouraged, but it's actually the exact same word that's used the verse before for bruised. The word discouraged is in Hebrew the same word for bruised. So think about what this text is actually saying. It says he will not grow faint like that faintly burning wick or be bruised or crushed till when? Till he established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So in other words, there is coming a day where this servant will become a faintly burning wick. And there is coming a day where the servant will be bruised, where he will be crushed. And that's the day when he establishes justice on the earth. Friends, what this is pointing us to is the day when this suffering servant not only becomes a faintly burning wick, but on the cross, he snuffed out. What this text is pointing us to is the day when this servant will serve us to the point of carrying our sins on his own shoulders all the way up to the hill of Golgotha, and he will hang on a cross, and there on that cross, he will be bruised for our iniquities. There on that cross, he will be crushed under the weight of the wrath of God that you and I deserve so that we instead could receive mercy and forgiveness and love from this suffering servant. This servant is going to be stripped naked so that you and I could be clothed with his righteousness. This king 
is literally setting aside his crown so that he can offer himself for the place of rebels who unleashed brokenness on the world. On the cross, this is what Jesus is doing. And through his resurrection, people like you and people like me, those that are lost in addiction, those that are broken, those who have no hope, those are the ones that get brought into his kingdom. The servant for the rebel, for the sinner. In other words, it's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, the last servant song in Isaiah. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed or bruised for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're a bruised reed today, he will not throw you away or break you or crush you because he was crushed in your place for you. If you're a faintly burning wick today, he's not going to snuff you out because Jesus on the cross was snuffed out for you so that you could receive life. So where do we go from here? Well, friends, there's, there's some requirements to be loved and pursued by God. There are some requirements to be loved and pursued by God. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're wondering, like, what, what's the entry fee? What, what's, the, what's the barrier that I have to clear? What, it, what is the requirement that God would put on me for me to be loved and pursued by God? Well, if you're s- sitting here asking that question, let me just mention three of them. You must be weak. You must be ungodly. And you must be full of sin. In order to be loved by God for the first time, you must be weak, you must be ungodly, and you must be full of sin. That's all that he requires of you. He will handle the rest. And the good news of the gospel is that he doesn't leave us weak, he doesn't leave us ungodly, he doesn't leave us full of sin, but that's the entry fee. Man, that, that's, that's all you have to bring to the table today. If all you can bring to the table is your true self full of brokenness and addiction and despair, that's enough. Friends, you are in good hands. Richard Sibbs, in his book, The Bruised Reed, says it this way. He says, none are fitter for comfort than those that think themselves furthest off. I want to invite you. Would you stand with me? Today, you feel like a bruised reed, or you feel like a faintly burning wick. If today you would put a large black X over your life, And maybe resonate with those words, the light has gone out of my life. If that's you today, you are in really good hands. Come to the servant Jesus and he will receive you, he will love you, and he will heal you. If if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, one of the things that we do each week is we grab bread and we grab the cup. We have wine or juice based on your conscience. And we remember that there was a day where the body of Jesus was broken for us. We remember that he was bruised for us. We remember that day. We remember that his blood was poured out so that we could be loved and we could be forgiven. And it was actually because of his love that he had his blood pour out for us. So what we're doing as Christians is we're actually looking back to his bruising. We're looking back to when on the cross, his candle, the light of his life went out. But it's not just looking back. 
we also look ahead to the day that he's going to return because he didn't just die and stay dead. He rose again from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven and he has promised to return to this earth and wipe away every tear from every eye, to, to, to undo all brokenness, to correct the world, to bring the kingdom fully so that we can enjoy life on earth the way that God intended us to, to enjoy it. There's gonna come a day where we sit down and we feast with Jesus. We remember that day. Remember that meal. And so here we are as Christians living between these two comings of Jesus, his first coming and his second coming. Man, we get beat up in the process, don't we? We struggle. We have seasons where we're full of joy and we have seasons where you light a candle of joy and it feels like a million miles away. But this meal anchors us in. We're held by his love. A faintly burning wick, he's not gonna, he's not gonna snuff it out. A bruised reed, he will not break or throw away or avoid. So today, if you're not a Christian, man, we're actually inviting you not to come and receive this meal. We're inviting you to Jesus today. We're going to have men and women down front after our service that would love to talk and pray with you to help you understand what it is to be a Christian. While we're taking communion, what I would urge you to do is look at our screen, and we're going to have some prayers that you could pray. These prayers, I think, will be really helpful for you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, hey, the worst thing you could do today is come and receive this meal bringing a false self, bringing a fake version of you, leaving your baggage behind. Friends, Jesus does not love a fake version of you. The fake version of you is not even real. He doesn't love it. He doesn't love the version of you without your baggage. He loves the real you. The best thing you could do today is bring the real you, baggage and all, to this table and receive his love in a fresh way today. So when you're ready, you can come and receive the, the, the bread and the cup. Do this in groups today and let's receive his love in ways that we need it. You're invited to come.